Thanks for listening to the Refuel Podcast. Be sure to tune in every Thursday for a new episode. I was thinking about like TV and shows that have families as like the main characters and how they've evolved and changed over the years. I started thinking about the shows that your grandparents probably watched. Um, How many of you have ever watched any of those shows? They're like old historical shows. Um, Some of you may have watched some of those. Has anybody watched the OG TV show, Andy Griffith? Okay. Okay, good. Okay. So you're, you're familiar with that. Um, so there's Andy Griffith and Andy, you know, Andy Griffith, it's this, you know, this dad and his son and like every problem dad has a solution for by the end of the episode, pretty much. That's every episode of Andy Griffith ever. There's the Brady Bunch, you know, all these kids and mom and dad are always right and, and they take care of things. Then how many of you seen the Brady Bunch? Okay. Then there was this one over here. My dad was always talking about it. You ever, anybody ever watched this show? It's like the quintessential 60s show where like the mom wears the pearls and the dress. The dad's always got a tie on. And they, the kids, like, they always get in trouble. But the dad's like, now, son, you need to do this. He's like, okay, dad. You know, it's just like your quintessential perfect cookie cutter family. So those are the shows your parents watched. These, or grandparents watched. These are the shows that your parents watched. Um, these are the shows that your parents watched. Um, so uh, there's this, your Boy Meets World, you know. Ha- anybody watch Boy Meets World? Well, all, almost all these shows have spinoffs now, too. There's Boy Meets World, Full House. Any Full Housers? Okay. Um, what about, yeah, what about the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air? Do you know what happened when, uh, do, do you know what happened when Chris Rock went to the police station? They found fresh prints on his face. Sorry, that was probably a bad joke. Uh, so, so your parents, you know, you, but here's the thing. In all these shows, what happened? There was a problem, and by the end of the episode, everything was fine. You know, the parents kicked in, the family kicked in, everybody, you know, was, was hugging, apologizing, kissing, snotting on each other, and everything was better at the end of the episode. In 25 minutes, all the world's problems were solved. And then there's the show's with families in your generation. And it seems like, correct me if I'm wrong, what's changed is that now at the end of the episode, the problems still exist, don't they? If anything, at the end of the episode, the problems have been compounded, right? You know, you leave with more problems, maybe a little more plastic surgery, and so think about this. Think about this. Because you, you know, we kind of started with these kind of families. Then we went to these kind of families. And now a lot of people are watching shows that celebrate these kind of families. So the, here's the question. Has, have families become more dysfunctional over time? Or has TV and shows have they started reflecting reality more? I think it might be a little bit of both. Because the fact is, ain't no family perfect like this, right? I don't care if you're in a cookie cutter family, there's no such thing as a perfect family. And maybe your family is somewhere in between Leave it to Beaver and the Kardashians. But there's something I want you to think about tonight. What does the word family mean to you? For some of you, that word, that that word family, it represents like a a place of safety. 
Like when you go home, no matter how terrible your day was at school, how pe- mean people were you to, to you at school, no matter how you bombed that test, you know you can go home and you're kind of in a place where you're gonna be nurtured and taken care of and you know, you're gonna find some cookies and some milk and everything's gonna be okay. For some of you, you, your family's go, you go home to your family, you kind of just feel like lost in the circus. Like, like little brothers got big problems, so they're focusing on little brothers' problems, and you're just by yourself. You know, every family is different. Some families represent a war zone. Like, problems are solved by screaming and throwing things at each other. And some families, unfortunately, some families are virtually non-existent. You look around and you see other ones of your friends and they go home to a family that loves them and they go home to a family that's intact and together and you go to a home but there's really not a family there, it's a house. What does the word family mean to you? Wherever you fall in that spectrum, I want you to think about this thought uh, tonight. We're gonna dive into the word and we will see how this thought is directly found in this passage that there's no family that God can't and won't use for our good and his glory. Whether you're on the leave it to beaver side of things or on the Kardashian side of things or somewhere in between, wherever you, whatever family you find yourself in, there's no family God can't use for our good and for his glory. So if you have your Bible, open up to Romans chapter 8. Romans is kind of sometimes a tricky book to just dive right into because it's like the the Apostle Paul is the one who God used to to pen this and it's kind of like he builds layer on layer on layer on layer on layer and by, by by chapter number eight, he's already kind of established a few layers. First layer, everybody's messed up, everybody's sinful. Second layer, nobody can get unmessed up by themselves. Third layer, Jesus is the only way to get unmessed up, the only way to be redeemed. That's a very rough explanation of those layers that Paul's established. But in Romans chapter 8, it reminds us that there is something yet to come. I'll bring up Romans 8 here on the screen here, and I think I can, let's see if I can decorate. Can you see the smiley face? Good deal. Uh, Romans chapter 8, we're going to zero in on two verses in Romans chapter 8. We're going to start right here, and we're going to go through the end of the chapter. We're going to start in verse 28 of Romans chapter 8. This may be one of the most quoted but misunderstood verses in the whole Bible. We're going to talk a little bit about about it, but when, when you read this, I want you to think about the family God puts you in. For some of you, I want you to think about the crazy family God puts you in. Some of you, I want you to think about the kind of fractured and distant family God puts you in, but I want you to think about it as we read this. Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. And those who he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray, and then we're going to tear this apart and think about our families. Um, God, I pray that as we talk about this subject, I know there are people in here who their families, on the outside, everything's great, and they're just glad that they have a good family to be in. God, I also think about students in this um, room tonight who, they struggle with the family that you put them in. God, I pray that tonight as we leave, that we will leave thanking you that you work in every family no matter how good or how messed up they are. In Jesus' name, amen.
Well, in Romans chapter 8, what we see here is we see that God works all things together for good. All things work together for good to those who love God. Now, people have used this verse quite often. It's on coffee mugs, it's on bumper stickers, it's on t-shirts, and it's turned into a bit of a cliche with Christians. You know what I mean by that? It's just something people say when they don't know what to say. Like, yeah, my dog got hit by a TTA bus. Well, God works all things together for good. You know, it's kind of turned into a, you know, kind of just something people say when they don't know what to say. But do you see when this verse says all things work together for good? I want you to see something here. When it's this verb work together, a better translation would be all things are caused to work together for good. Meaning that it's not like the universe is just out there correcting itself. I've heard people say that before. It's not that, well, if you give things enough time, it'll work out. You know, that sounds like something your grandmother would tell you. There is some, something, some force, someone causing all things to work together for good for those who love God. Now, if we were to look this verse up in, in, in the language that it was written in, for, the first thing we'd see is that it's written in the singular you know what I mean by the singular? That there's not a bunch of different people working things together for good in your life. There's, there can only be one force or one person or one thing working in your life, bringing all the craziness of your life together for good. There can only be one thing. So that reminds us that there aren't multiple ways for all the craziness of your life to turn out into something good. There's only one way for your life to turn into something good, especially when you're dealing with family, so what is that one way? Well, it's not just written in the singular, it's written in the third person singular. Do you, you remember from grammar school, you learned about there's the first person, the second person, and the third person. First person, I. Second person, you. Third person, he, she, it. Did you, did you ever do that in school? You had to learn about, well, the third person meaning it's not you that's working things together for good in your life. You can't bring all the crazy hot mess of your life together into something good. It's not writing to, 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 to me that I can do it. It's in the third person, meaning somebody else has to do it. And then as we look at it, we realize that, that the Spirit intercedes according to the will of God, those who love God, for those who He, meaning God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. It's very obvious that there's only one way for your life to work out for good, and it's by God causing it to happen. God's involvement in your life, or specifically God's involvement in your family. Now that we see that, well, who does God work all things together for good for? Well, let me change my pen here. There are two, um, there, there are two they call participles that, that, that tell us how. The first is that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good. So for people who have a relationship with God, the Bible says we love him because he loved us first. So, so this has to do with people who have faith in God, people who are saved, people who've been called by God to salvation. For those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. We can see throughout the rest of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 10, we're saved by faith in God, by if you confess with your mouth, Declare that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved. How can they call on him who they haven't heard? Right? 
Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So people who have heard the gospel have responded, turned in faith to the message of Jesus, believed in Jesus for salvation. These are the people that God is talking about here, that God works in their life for good. So if you're a child of God tonight, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, we're gonna talk a little bit more about how that happens, placed your faith in Jesus, you can be assured that God is working all things in your life for your good, and all things, that even means your family situation. Well, how in the world is God working all this for good? Well, look at this. It says, those who he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son that he might be firstborn among many brothers. Do you, know, do you see what this is here? This is, I don't know if you, you can read my writing here. This is God's perspective of what he did in your life, how he saved you. God isn't like a time, well, God, exi- God can exist in time, but he can exist outside of time. Does that make sense? And that before there was an earth, before there was any you know, dog running around on the earth or a rhinoceros or anything like that, before there was a sun, a moon, and stars, God had a plan to save you. Those who he foreknew, God knew you were going to exist. He predestined to become be conformed to the image of the Son. Matt, do you believe in predestination? Well, if it's in the Bible, I'm gonna believe it. I'll believe in predestination, and I'll believe that Jesus is an atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the sins of the entire world. I'm just gonna believe what the Bible says here. This is God's perspective. God sees everything as something that's been finished and something that's been done. But look down here, it says, and those who, let me change colors here. Those who he predestined, he called, who he called, he justified, and those who he justified, he glorified. This is our perspective. This is the way that we understand our salvation, that we experienced our salvation. That may not make sense yet. So let me show you this picture. Have you ever seen the, there's, I, I, I get lost in Google. I was looking up split screens of the same geographical features from a bird's eye view and from a worm's eye view. So this is the same forest, bird's eye view, worm's eye view. Sometimes we're in the forest and we can't see the trees, right? God, when he planned our salvation, when he, he, he planned the, all, all of the ins and outs of, uh, of sending Jesus to die for our sins and to, to, to make us in who we wanted to be, we were foreknown. He knew we would exist and he, he, he predestined us. He called us to be conformed to who? The image of Jesus. But you didn't experience it that way, did you? You were called. Let's see if I can get my little toothpaste tube out here. You were called. You heard the gospel, didn't you? If you were saved, there was a day when there was a time when you you, you heard the message that Jesus died for your sin, that He paid the penalty, that He rose again, and that He's Lord, and that when you believe in Him, you can be saved and. When God gave you that faith and you believed in Jesus and, 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 and your heart turned to him, you were justified. You were made right with God. We learn in Romans chapter 3 that you can only be justified. You can only be made right with God. You can only be saved by faith in him. And then one day, that's what this Romans 8 is talking about, we'll be glorified. One day we will be like Jesus. 
One day we will be given a glorified body. You're like, Matt, I thought I already had a glorified body. You'll be given a new body, a body that doesn't age, a body that doesn't break down, a body that doesn't get knee injuries when you do squats. Like, like uh, we will be in glory forever with Jesus. But here's the thing, here's the rub. We're not there yet. We're right here. God's perspective, it's been done. But from our perspective, we're right here. This is where we're living. And God's doing a work in our life. It's called sanctification. He's making us more like Jesus. And what this verse here is talking about is, is that God uses all things to work together for our good so that we can be made like Jesus. He's working in our lives. And you say, okay, Matt, that's great. What in the world does it have to do with my flaming hot pile of mess that is my family? Well, I'm glad you asked. What I believe and what I believe the Bible teaches, there's no family God can and won't use for, his, for our good and his glory, but there are some relatable families of the Bible that demonstrate this fact. Now I've got 10 minutes to talk about 10 people in the Bible that you may relate to their family situation. What I did was I put the verses on the screen so that maybe if you're, if you're like, I really relate to this person or I really relate to this person's family situation, you could write that verse down and you could look up all the details of their story later when you go home. If we broke down each of these stories, we'd be here all night, which I'd be okay with, but you might not be. Your parents definitely wouldn't be. So I wanna show you some people, and maybe you'll resonate with some of their stories, and the first guy's name is Ishmael. Say that word, it's fun to say, Ishmael, right? You sound cultured when you say it because it's not like an American name. Ishmael's story was that you might resonate with. My parents separated. My parents separated. You know, some of you may have, you, you may be growing up or you may be familiar with a situation in your life where, you know, dad and mom used to be together. You used to be able to count on that, but they're, they're not together anymore. Mom lives here, dad lives here. Sometimes you go to mom's house and sometimes you go to dad's house. And the family that you had has been ripped apart. Long story short, Ishmael and his mom were forced to leave his father Abram's house. The thing is, Ishmael's mom was not Abram, Abram, Abram's wife. Abram and his wife Sarah, they couldn't have kids. So Sarah's like, hey, why don't you have a kid with my, like, maidservant, and you can count that as like our kid. And so he did, Ishmael. But then Sarah got pregnant, and she had Isaac. And Sarah starts getting a little jealous of, 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 of Ishmael and his mom getting all the, all the treatment and all the attention, and here she is with, with Isaac. So she's like, listen up, Abraham. It's me or her, me or her, me or her. One of us, gotta, one of us is going to go. And Abram tells Hagar, Ishmael's mom, y'all got to leave. They're left alone. They have to fend for themselves. And long story short, you know, they, they run out of food. They don't have any shelter. But God redeems this situation. He works in Ishmael's situation where his mom and his dad part ways. But God promises to make Ishmael a great nation, and he does. His descendants still roam the earth today. And he provides for him, and he takes care of them. He, he gives them food. He gives them water. He gives them shelter. He cares for them. It's a reminder that you know, sometimes when you know, parents split up the kid or the teen, you feel like 
Everybody's just talking about my parents. Nobody cares about me. God sees you, and God knows what you're going through, and God can care for you. And just like God worked in Ishmael's life, by the way, somebody, all you artists, you need to come up with good Bible art because Google image search has no good Bible art. It's all either a b- bunch of white people, and they're really Middle Eastern, you know. Um, it, it's either that or it's just terrible artwork. But it, it, God can work in Ishmael's life in this situation. God can work in your life and work all things together for good. The next person that we learn about is Joseph. Could write a book on Joseph. Many people have. Joseph... Maybe his line would be, I don't fit in with the rest of my family. In some ways, Joseph was his dad's favorite, but in some ways, Joseph just did not fit in with his family. Maybe, or you, do you feel like you were born into this family? Like, you, you may share DNA with them, but like, you, you have nothing in common. Like, like, yeah, I felt like that sometimes in my family. I like, no, why did I end up here? Like, I have nothing in common with the rest of my family. Joseph... His brothers hated him so much. He, he stuck out so much and he was so weird and he, they thought he was favored by his dad and I guess he kind of was. But they decided, let's sell our brother into slavery. Has anybody else's house reached that level yet? Maybe not. Hopefully not, right? Um, I'm going to sell my brother into slavery. Long story short, Joseph goes through a long journey of being a slave in Egypt, being in jail in Egypt, but finally God takes Joseph and he uses him. He, he pretty much becomes second in command in Egypt. And when Egypt experiences this famine, he saves probably hundreds of thousands of lives because God uses him. And he ends up saving his brother's lives too. And one one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Genesis chapter 20, verse 50. It's on here where Joseph meets his brothers after all that time. And his brother's like, this guy's going to pick up a tree and knock us out. He's going to kill us. And Joseph says, it was for the saving of many lives that God had you sell me into slavery. So you see, Joseph didn't fit in with the rest of his family, was so, was stood out so much, was so hated that he was sold into slavery. God used it for good. He redeemed that story. The next one we learn about is Ruth. I'm skipping over a lot of other stories too. Ruth says, Ruth didn't come from a Christian family. Ruth didn't come from a family that believed in God. She was a Moabite. We had a small group several years ago, and we were talking about Moab and Ruth, and it was right around prom season, and, and, and we, we determined that, that, that the, the, the modern equivalent of Moab was that circle that happens at prom that you don't want to get in the middle of, right? When you think of Moab, think of idol worship. When you think of Moab, think of they sacrificed their own children to idols. That was the culture that she grew up in. She married a, a Jewish man named Malon who had a mother named Naomi. Her husband died. She had no one except her mother-in-law. And she said this to her mother-in-law, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She turned from her idol-worshiping ways, embraced the God, the true God, the real God of heaven, ended up going back to Israel, meeting a tall, handsome, dark man named, uh, uh, tall, dark, and handsome man named Boaz, Make sure I get that sequential order right there. The tall, dark, and handsome man named Boaz. And they had children together, and Ruth became the great-grandmother of King David. God took some girl from an idol-worshiping, child-sacrificing culture and family and redeemed her story, worked all things for good, even the death of her husband, and he used her in an incredible way. 
So maybe you don't grow, you, you, you come, but like your parents want nothing to do with God. You, you're, you do not grow up in a Christian house, a Christian family. You believe in God. You feel like you stand alone. You come and you see all these other teenagers that have Christian parents. You might think, oh, that must be nice. God's going to use them big. Maybe he will, but God wants to use you too. So there's that. And then David, we could write a book about David. Many have. David, I'm lost in my family's shadow. Okay, get this. You can read any of these stories. I got the references up here. David is one of eight brothers. He's the youngest. Where are my youngest at? Who here's the youngest in your house, right? The youngest, right? Um, David is the youngest in his house. The prophet Samuel comes to David's house, goes to David's dad, Jesse, and says, God told me that one of your sons is going to be the next king of Israel. I want to find him so I can anoint him as the next king. So, you know, Jesse calls all his boys. Hey, uh, you know, Jephthah, come over here. Hey, uh, hey, uh, you know, you know, I'm trying to think of Hebrew names and they're all escaping me now. You know, hey, Abraham, come over here. You know, hey, Asher, come over here. You know who he doesn't call? The youngest, David, who's sitting out in the field watching sheep. And, and Samuel's going through each of these guys and they're all big, you know, muscular, hitting the gym. You know, they don't skip out on leg day type guys. And he's like, he's not the one. He's not the one. Goes through all seven and he says, Jesse, do you have any other sons? And Jesse's like, yeah. Like, like there's this like toothpick, you know, toothpick on legs. You know, David, he's out there watching the sheep. But you, he's, he's too young. He's too scrawny. You don't want him. And Samuel's like, bring him to me. He's the next king. David was lost in the shadow of his family. Maybe you grew up and your dad is a really you know, popular person. Your mom is a really well-known person. You know, people are like, are you going to be a doctor like your dad? You know, are you going to be an attorney like your mom? Like, I got so ticked off when people are like, do you sing like your dad? And I'm like, do you ask stupid questions like your parents? I said that one time and I got in so much trouble. But yeah, maybe you felt like you're in your parent's shadow or you're in the shadow of your older brother or older sister and you go to school and like there's this teacher's like, oh, I had your older brother in class and I expect you to be exactly like your older brother and you're lost in your family's shadow. God has something to do through your life and wants to work your situation out for your good and for his glory. Let's try to say this name. Mephibosheth. Look at the person next to you and say, Mephibosheth. I don't know why, but I just feel like I'm saying it wrong every time I say it, even if I'm saying it right. Mephibosheth. Funny name, maybe, but there was nothing funny about what Mephibosheth experienced. He was the grandson of the current king, Saul. His father was why did I just blank on his? Jonathan, his father was Jonathan, who was the son of the king, so he was the grandson of the king. A revolt happened. You remember David, who was anointed king, took over, and Mephibosheth's grandfather was put to death, and his dad was put to death on the same day. There was a raid going on on the palace where he lived, so one of the servants of the palace, when Mephibosheth was really little, picked him up and was carrying him out of the palace, tripped and fell down the steps and dropped Mephibosheth, and he lost the use of his legs. He became lame. What a terrible turn of events. Mephibosheth lost two members of his family. He lost a parent. And I've never experienced this myself, but maybe you've experienced the loss of a mom 
or the loss of a dad or the loss of a sibling. You will never forget it and you will never get over it. But Mephibosheth's story reminds us of something. It's that God can even work in situations as tragic as that for our good and his glory. So David's king and he says, hey, are there any people left over from Jonathan's family? And one of his advisors says, yeah, there's this guy named Mephibosheth, like he lost the use of his legs. David says, bring him to me. David moved him into the palace. David said, you will always eat at the king's table. David took care of him for the rest of his life and forever in the Bible, in in, in the book of 2 Samuel, we read of Mephibosheth as a reminder that God cares about kids and teens and even adults who lost a parent and have no one to take care of them. Actually, if you read through the Bible, you'll learn that God has a special care, a special concern, and a special compassion for kids and teens who don't have parents. So even a story like this, God can use for our good and his glory. We're back to David. David writes some Psalms, and I mean, they're, 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 they're more sad than even like the, the, the sappiest Taylor Swift lyrics sometimes. And this to me may be one of the most heartbreaking but beautiful of the Psalms that David wrote. It's Psalm chapter 27. David is being pursued. by Most scholars believe that this is when he was being pursued by King Saul's army. He was hiding in a cave, probably by himself, maybe with a few of his men with him. It was said and it was believed that most of David's close family refused to associate with him because he was being pursued and they were afraid they'd get killed with David. In the middle of that, David wrote this Psalm. I should have put it on the screen because it's so beautiful. He said, my mother and my father abandoned me, but the Lord will receive me. And maybe you've been in a situation where your parents just said, I'm done. Where your parents chose drugs over their kid. Where their parents chose a new relationship over you and you feel like it's such a, such a slap in the face, such a rejection of you and who you are, remember that the Bible says this, my father or my mother may abandon me, but the Lord will receive me. Even in this moment in David's life, God is bringing this to his soul, working even such a terrible situation as this for David's good and for God's glory. Solomon, like I said, we need better artists to draw Bible things, okay? Um, I don't know what's the deal with his eyeshadow is. You know, I don't know. Um, But Solomon was the son of King David, but many of you are familiar with the story of what happened with David and the big mistake that he made. David had an affair with Solomon's mother, Bathsheba. When David had that affair, Bathsheba became pregnant. David Made, went from bad to worse. He killed Bathsheba's husband. He moved Bathsheba in as his wife. The son or the, the child that she bore because of being yeah, the affair passed away and then she became pregnant again through David and Solomon was born. And Solomon had to live with this reality that the only reason that his parents were married was because his dad knocked up his mom. And maybe you feel like you're the only reason your family 
is together. You're the one that has to hold the family together. Your brothers and sisters are going crazy. Your mom and your dad are fighting, and you feel like you're the only constant in your family, the only one that's holding it together. Like, if you weren't there, maybe your parents wouldn't even be together. And the pressure of that, the guilt of that is just weighing you down so much. We see God redeeming Solomon and his family situation. Solomon becomes one of the wisest kings, the wisest king in all of Israel, the wisest man really to ever live. And he became part of the line of Christ. He was an ancestor, an earthly ancestor of Jesus. I can't help but think, yeah, God supernaturally gave Solomon wisdom, but you think maybe Solomon learned some wisdom in all the family situations that he had to deal with? I would say so. The next one is Tamar. I don't know if you ever heard Tamar's story, and um, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be graphic in the way that I describe it, so I'm just going to kind of give a general, a general overview of what happened to her. Tamar was one of David's daughters, and one of Tamar's brothers sexually assaulted her. And the family, the culture during that time was pretend like it didn't happen. Sweep it under the rug. But what we read in this account of this terrible thing happening in a family, and sadly, they say most of those cases, those instances of of abuse in our culture today happen still within a family by a family member, instead of sweeping it under the rug, instead of pretending like it didn't happen, instead of keeping her mouth closed and being silent about it, when all the pressure said be silent about it, you can read how Tamar put on sackcloth and ashes, an outward sign of grieving, and she vocalized what happened to her. She told everybody what happened to her, even though people were telling her to be quiet. What we can learn through the rest of kind of 2 Samuel, and you'll see, is that that name, her name Tamar, became associated with strength. The name Tamar actually means palm, like the palm tree. Her name became associated with strength and became associated with beauty. And in the middle of this very like machoistic culture of the Middle East, there's this story of this woman who refused to be quiet and was strong. We see how God used this terrible, terrible situation for his glory. And if that's you and you've, that is something that you've you've struggled with and you can't forget what happened, please know that we love you, that there's no blame on you, and that if there's anything we can do, we're here. The next person that we learn about after Tamar, you may have heard of this guy. Anybody heard of this guy? Jesus. This may be a little bit of a generalization of his situation, but it is the reality. Jesus had a stepdad. And maybe you're in a situation where you have a stepdad or you have a stepmom. You're pretty sure she's the spawn of Satan. Like you're pretty sure your stepdad is the biggest jerk to ever live because they moved into a role in your life that you didn't ask them to be in. You know, Jesus was born and had a dad that he shared no physical DNA with. If you read through the Gospels, you learn that Joseph, it seems like, didn't have a huge role in Jesus' life. He was almost the quintessential stepdad. At the cross, there was Mary, but you rarely see anything after about Matthew chapter 3 of, or Matthew chapter 2, excuse me, of 
Joseph being involved in Jesus' life. How, did, <laughs> how was this situation redeemed? Well, Jesus literally changed the world. Um, that's, that's not hyperbole. That's not like exaggerating. Like Jesus literally changed the world by dying on a cross, offering payment for the forgiveness of sins. So you have a stepdad, you have a stepmom, and that there's a tense situation in your house. Know that God can work in, if God can work in that situation <laughs> by sending his son to that situation, God can work in your situation too. We're almost done. There's no name in this, in the Bible for this guy, so I just called him Demon Boy. Uh, some people call him the demoniac, but that just sounds like a very, like, yeah, scholarly term. This boy was possessed by a demon. He might have said something like this, my parents did the best they could, but they couldn't help me. And this boy was plagued by a demon. He was possessed by a demon. His dad took him everywhere to try to get this demon removed from, his, you know, from himself and to get, get healing for his son. And he could not get healing for his son until he brought him to Jesus. And, G, and this boy was healed by Jesus. And he became a power of Jesus's miracle-working healing power. And maybe you're in a situation, you've got good parents. They're trying their best to take care of you, but... Even parents have limits. Turn to the miracle working power of Jesus. And then finally, there's Timothy. One of my parents wants nothing to do with God. You come to church with your mom, dad stays home. You come to church with your dad, mom stays home. You know, we learn about Timothy in the Bible and what we learn is that his dad, his dad was Greek, his dad wanted nothing to do with, with Jesus. His mom, from his infancy, from being a child, his mom and his grandma read the Bible to him and they read the scriptures to him. And eventually, he grew up to become one of the great pastors of the early church. And the apostle Paul kind of took him under his wing and mentored him. One of my parents wants nothing to do with God. You know, God even works in those kind of family situations for our good and for his glory. So to sum it up, there's no family that God can't and won't use for our good and his glory. We gotta hit these hard. I got five H words for you. It's family, I thought F words, but we can't. The first is hold. Hold on to trust in God. I wanna show you this verse one more time. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. You think God saved you from sin just to let you wander off and get lost in the drama that is your family? Absolutely not. God is still working in your life. The next H word, honor. You know, we're commanded to honor our father and our mother. There's sometimes, depending on the home that you live in, you won't be able to honor your parents' actions. There are maybe, maybe you're in a situation where your parents are doing something that is displeasing to God. You can honor the position that God put, in, put them in in your life. You can honor the fact that God's gonna use flawed parents. I'm, I'm a parent and it's crazy. I'm a flawed parent. Your parents are flawed parents. We all have sin, but God is gonna use the parents that he put in your life for his good and, or for our good and for his glory. The next is heal. If you can, make things right. Show me someone who's ticked off at their parents as a college student and as an adult, and I will show you someone who filters every decision they make by the anger and hate they have toward their parents. They start making every decision based on, well, what would my dad not do? I'm gonna do that. What would my mom not do? I'll do that. Instead of saying, what would God have me to do? 
Make things right if possible. It's not a, you may be in a situation where your parent is not in your life anymore and you can't make it right, but you can forgive and you can move on and live for Jesus. The next is hang. Hang on to God's plan for families. You may be in a family situation where it's not a family that honors God, but can I tell you that there are families who honor God, that our church is full of moms and dads who nurture and love their kids. Maybe you should come get to know some of them. Our church is full of husbands and wives who are dedicated and loved each other. I visited the hospital a couple months ago, a a husband and wife that had been married for 76 years. She was like, he was under hospice care. She was in in like one of the full like, like mobility, like wheelchair things, but she refused to leave his side in the hospital. Just because your family isn't working doesn't mean that families don't work. Hang on to God's plan for families. Finally, help. Reach out to the family of God for help. If you just can't deal in your situation, you need someone to talk to. Here we are. You need someone to show you what a family is like. (laughs) Here we are. You can listen to April and I argue about landscaping. And we argue about it, but we don't yell at each other. Just ask her about this one word, pompous grass. (laughs) We argue. We don't always see eye to eye, but we don't scream and we love each other. Reach out. Maybe you're part of a family that loves God and your family's taking care of you. Maybe you would invite that friend into your family to hang out with you that needs to see what a God-loving family looks like. So no matter what, whether you find yourself in a Leave it to Beaver situation, a Kardashian situation, a Joseph situation, or a Timothy situation, or anything in between. God works through our families for our good and his glory. Let's pray. God, thank you for bringing us together tonight. Oh, God, this is a touchy subject. Oh, this, is, this is one that hits deep. Um, God, I, I pray for the students that are really struggling with things going on in their family. God, I pray that you'll give them comfort and that through this passage, this this overarching reality that you work in all things for our good and your glory, God, that that there will be hope. There'll be peace that's given through that. God, we wanna stop and thank you for our parents and siblings and grandkids, no, we don't have grandkids, grandparents, And God, we thank you for the families that are working. We thank you for the families that are good examples to us of what you've intended for the family to be. And I pray that we'll take time to stop and be grateful for that. And God, I pray that as we leave, that we'll remember that you're the one that heals hearts, you're the one who saves lives, and you're the only one worth living for. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Refuel Podcast. If you have any questions or would like to review the notes from this podcast, be sure to download the Refuel app from the App Store on any mobile device.